0: Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Amy Killen, who is a leading longevity and regenerative physician specializing in sex and skin. She's also an international speaker, author, educator, mom of three, should be rapper, and founder of the Human Optimization Project. Today, we dove deep into her ear medicine background and transitioned into a longevity and sexual health guru. We spoke at length about longevity and functional and regenerative medicine the role of ovarian aging, the impact of lifestyle on our sexual health, the need to destigmatize women's sexual needs and health. And then we dove deep into a group of different topics, including microdosing semiglutide supplements, including rapamycin or and how to address changes in our skin and hair in perimenopause and menopause. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, Dr. Kellen, it is such a pleasure to finally connect with you. I know my listeners have been really looking forward to our conversation.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So as a former ER nurse, I am innately curious why so many of my colleagues leave ER medicine. I mean, I can probably guess, but how did you go from being an adrenaline junkie, fueled (laughs) ER doc to doing the work that you're doing today?
1: I think a few things happened. Um, first of all, I had my three kids within two years. So I had twins, and then I had another one 20 months later. And I was still working this 4 a.m. ER shift where I was getting up at three to go to work. And you know, you can imagine how just sleep deprived and kind of my whole life was just crazy. The stress, the not eating well, the having no time to exercise, all of that was a problem. And then I started seeing that my patients in the ER were coming in a lot of times with problems that were very similar to what I was experiencing. Like they were experiencing, you know, chronic diseases or even a acute problems that were actually just manifestations of stress and not eating well and not exercising and not sleeping and all these things. And so I just kind of realized that in order to help them and to help myself, I needed to help learn a whole new set of tools and tricks. And so, so I left the ER in 2013 and uh, haven't looked back.
0: <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I was an ER nurse for four years in my 20s before I became an NP. So I was an NP in my 20s and transitioned to cardiology. But I always tell people like in my twenties, I wanted to, I was such a people pleaser. And I was like, where is the most challenging place to work in a hospital? Mm -hmm. And I loved the variety. I love the medical complexity of so many of the patients, but I don't think that would serve me well at this stage of life. And it's interesting through podcasting, I've met so many ER physicians and nurses that have left for their health, for health reasons, for so many people that they just say it was fun in my twenties. And then as I started a family or I started to recognize, like, as I was getting older, I couldn't deal with the sleep deprivation. The stress was out of control. And I oftentimes have to remind my non-medical husband, when you work in healthcare, you're lucky if you can empty your bladder, let alone actually sit down and eat a meal, which is not conducive to anyone's health in any capacity.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I remember going entire shifts, like 10 hours and I would drink, you know, 44 to 60 ounces of Diet Coke. I would have a monster. I'd like, I'd have multiple drinks and I would never go to the bathroom for like 10 hours. And not because I didn't have to, but because I, there was no time, like you just don't have time to go to the bathroom. And so that's not, that's
0: not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember when I first started as a nurse, I worked the 7P to 7A, which as horrible as it was to work those hours, I had the best group of nurses that were that mentored me. But I remember that it was always at 6 a.m. in the morning when I would really hit a wall, I'd start getting tired. And I'm like, I haven't peed all night long. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like I would drink Diet Pepsi because I wasn't a coffee drinker. And I I wasn't an eater at night, but there will always be like Krispy Kreme donuts because I trained in Baltimore and that's like the heyday of Krispy Kreme donuts and (laughs) all this junk food all night long. I'm like, what's (laughs) the worst thing you can do to your body other than staying up all night is fueling it with hyper palatable processed foods and all this like sugary junk that all of us ate to stay awake.
1: Yep, absolutely. I miss the camaraderie and I miss, you know, the the really sick patients that we were able to turn around. Like there's no feeling like that in the world, but I do feel very lucky to have gotten out of an environment that is so difficult (laughs) on your health.
0: No, it definitely is. And I, I think that's interesting for me is, you know, I've graduated from nursing school, like now 25 years ago. And what's always curious to me is how many people are still in it. And most of them, maybe they're left, they become NPs or they're, you know, they're doing faculty positions because they're like, I just don't, that it was just the wear and tear on my body and my mental health. And let me be very clear. I know both of us are super supportive of all of our people that are in the trenches and all the work that they do. I just know for myself, I wouldn't be as healthy as I am right now if I were still in that degree of stress. So how did you go from ER medicine to where you are? Because you really have positioned yourself as this female expert on biohacking and sexual health and skin health. How did that develop for you? Because it, I'm sure it's a probably pretty interesting trajectory. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So when I left the ER, I became interested in kind of, you know, longevity medicine, anti-aging medicine, you know, functional medicine, like all these things that are basically looking at root cause and prevention and trying to help you be healthier. And so I started working in hormones. I did. I opened a clinic doing a lot of bioidentical hormones for men and women. and, And I thought that was great. I loved it. And what would happen is people would come in, you know, in this kind of crisis state, you know, they were like, they're not sleeping and they're not eating well and their motivation is low and they feel horrible and their energy is bad and their mood is bad and all of those things. They'd come in this crisis state and I would help them with hormones as well as lifestyle modifications. And then they would come back, you know, three months later or so, and they would say, okay, you know, I'm doing better. I'm energy's better. I'm out of crisis mode. And now can you help me with either my skin or my sex life? And it was always one of those two things. It was like skin and hair or my sex life. And so I started thinking about those things as being almost like this next level of health. Like, you know, certainly those things aren't the most important things, but they are important and they make us feel good. And they're, you know, they help us with connections and confidence and things like that. And, you know, once people kind of lay a good foundation of health, then they can really start focusing on these other things that just make their lives better and make them happier. So that's kind of how it started. And so I started looking at, you know, how can we improve sexual health and skin and hair coming from, you know, a different perspective, like using all the different tricks and tools that I have, you know, from traditional medicine to integrative medicine, to regenerative medicine, like stem cell medicine, um, and using all the different things that are out there to improve those things instead of just coming at it from sort of one perspective. So that's
0: the story. (laughs) Now, and I would imagine that it's really gratifying to work with a population of patients that really want to come see you because you're, you're helping them, you know, improve their hormonal regulation. You're helping them you know, feel like they can reconnect with their partner or reconnect with someone they're dating. And I think for so many of us, and I only can only speak as a female, I feel like as women are transitioning towards perimenopause and menopause, there can be all these changes in our bodies. And I know libido and, and sexual health is a huge aspect of that. And what's interesting to me is when we're thinking about bioidenticals and, and hormone replacement therapy, and we start having those conversations. I'm oftentimes still surprised slash shocked at how many patients or even women on social media are still terrified to take any hormonal replacement therapy, how many clinicians, because the women's health initiative mm-hmm. are terrified to prescribe hormones. And I love that you're part of the narrative to talk about the research and to you know, share this objectively so that people can get educated. So they can then go to, if they're working with someone locally, they can be the best advocate for themselves because my practitioner always says, and it's kind of crass, but he's a man. He always says the way, you know, your hormones are properly balanced is that you are hungry, happy, and horny. And if you're not all of the above, there's something that needs to be done (laughs) To better balance your hormones. And so I always give him credit because I'm like, this isn't something I per se would have said, but it really keeps things in perspective. So that's how we all should be right. We shouldn't just assume that check the box. I'm 45 years old. I have no libido. This is just the way things are. But I think for many, many women in particular, this is the narrative that starts for them. They're like, you know, they want to connect with their partner. They have no libido and this becomes hugely problematic.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I had a patient recently who told me that she had gone to another doctor previous and because she was having low libido and the doctor said to her, Oh, that's a sign. It's time for you to stop having sex.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And she was was like late forties and she was like, what (laughs) is that right? (laughs) Um, wow. but yeah, I mean, there's still that, that idea out there that that your libido changes for a reason and that you should just listen to it and you should stop. But I'm a firm believer that menopause and this is controversial, but I really feel like menopause is sort of a disease unto itself and that it's not talked about like that because, you know, no one wants to say that out loud. But we, you know, in this sort of longevity community, we talk about aging as being a disease because it increases your risk of developing all other diseases. So it's kind of its own disease that we can fight against. Well, you know, using that same sort of logic, menopause is absolutely a disease because it increases your risk of many, many other diseases. You know, once you go through menopause and you lose Estrogen specifically, but also testosterone and progesterone and other hormones, you see this huge increased rate of developing cardiovascular disease and diabetes and depression and osteoporosis and, you know, anxiety and UTIs. I mean, there's the list of things that happen after menopause is crazy. And yet, 20 years later, from the Women's Health Initiative, people are still afraid to prescribe or take hormones which i just think is so crazy
0: it's almost criminal and and i say this now as someone that is middle aged there was a podcast with peter atia and that he did with huberman and i think about an hour into the podcast he said i think the greatest tragedy that has happened in my lifetime as a clinician is the women's health initiative because the downward effect to your point of what women go through in menopause. And and you said, you know, we, depending on where our patient is, like some people want to be on hormones, some people don't want to be on hormones, but if you understand the ramifications of the degree of inflammation and oxidative stress, and you could be doing all the right things, I cannot tell you, and I'm sure you hear it too, women will say, well- I don't want to take hormones, but what else can I do? And I was like, but there's you can do all the right things with lifestyle, but it nothing's going to replace that. Like there's no supplement, there's no magic supplement that's going to replace your progesterone or your estradiol or your testosterone. So it's really like leaning into what does your body need, but acknowledging that we have a whole generation of women. It's my mom's generation. Mm -hmm. They all got taken off their hormones. I'm watching the sequelae of many of my aunts that are dealing with oste- significant osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, memory changes, cognitive dysfunction, and it's really sad. And I don't yeah. want that to be anyone's, you know, destiny. So. One thing that I loved about your content that I was reading about in preparation for this was that you were talking about only one in five animals actually go through menopause. Maybe start there because I found that fascinating. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, how is that possible? Is it because we live longer? So yeah, listening-
1: it is interesting. So there's some whale species that go through, like killer whales, for instance, go through menopause. Now there are a number of animals, of course, that stop producing children and having offspring after a certain age. But that sort of reproduction is a little bit different than what we're talking about here, which is the hormone, But most 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 mammals don't actually stop making key hormones midway through their lives. Like it's just not something that happens. And, you know, scientists have looked into it, you know, like, why do we even have this? And as far as we know, there's not really a good evolutionary reason that we as humans or any of us need to stop making those hormones. You know, there was arguments for years against hormone therapy, like, Oh, you know, you should, your body doesn't need it after a certain age. And you, but there's actually, that's actually not true. Like there's no good reason that we should stop making these hormones. And so we don't know why we don't know why the humans, you know, humans do. And there's a book, bu- a big, Push now in the longevity field is actually figuring out: is there a way to delay menopause? Is there, you know, probably not a way to reverse it because menopause is, you know, you've run out of follicles. Your ovaries have run out of eggs, and those follicles are what make the hormones. So by the time you're about ten years into menopause, you have zero follicles left. But those first few years, you actually still do have some. You have about a thousand or so. But you know, how can we slow down the dying off of those follicles so that by the time you're 50, you still have many more and you can continue to make hormones. And that's a big field of research right now, but we don't have the answers yet, but it's very, very interesting.
0: No, it really is. And ovarian aging is something I had not considered before I started really diving into looking at what goes on. So at birth, you have 5 million follicles and for anyone that is curious, Dr. Amy has an amazing series of Instagram posts on this topic that I myself watched because I found it really interesting. So we have 5 million follicles at birth. We have 500,000 at puberty. And then as you mentioned, you have a thousand around menopause, and then it takes you know 10 plus years to go through the rest of those follicles. Although at that point, you are no longer fertile. You're not ovulating, et cetera. And other things that I found really interesting about the ovarian function is that They age faster than our other organs. And why is that?
1: We don't know, but they age, yeah, two to five times faster than other organs in our, in our bodies. And they're actually an interesting thing to look at. You know, with aging, we can't, it's hard to look at treatments over an entire person's lifetime and say, did it affect longevity? But you could look at, did do treatments affect the ovarian aging? Because we think that some of the same things that lead to aging in our bodies in general lead to, you know, ovarian aging as well. You know, people think that, you know, all of these eggs are, obviously these eggs are one egg is being released every month, right? For us to be able to have our cycle or maybe two or, you know, but a couple per month but there are about a thousand eggs every month that are just sort of going through this process of starting to develop into a follicle. And then they either become apoptotic, they die off or they become senescent cells like zombie cells. And neither one of those eggs are any good anymore. So is there a way to slow down that process where we're wasting, you know, a thousand eggs a month up to a thousand eggs a month and not using them for anything. And that's the question there's, you know and there's been animal studies that there's some medications as well as some supplements that seem to be able to slow that process down, but it hasn't been studied in humans yet.
0: Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. And I think for listeners to understand that research starts with animal models and then sometimes we can extrapolate to humans, but really looking at human research is what is most beneficial. And I would imagine that there are a lot of individuals who want to delay having children. They want to, you know, people that freeze their eggs or people that are looking to say, I don't want to have children at 30. I want to have children at 40. And what can I do? And I'm sure this is an area of tremendous interest. What can I do to forestall the aging of my ovarian follicles so that I will not be in a position where I'm dealing with infertility which you and I both know, I mean, it's rampant now in the United States that there are so many people impacted by you know, infertility, what do you think about the impact of, you know, our nutrition and our, you know, habits? So alcohol use, extreme stress, how does that impact our aging? And I would imagine in negative ways, but what are some of the things that you think are most important, most impactful when we're considering the longevity aspects?
1: I think it's mostly lifestyle. You know, certainly I think that there are some supplements that can help and I have my own brand of that, which is awesome, but I think it starts with the basics. I think, you know, sleep is foundational and it's not talked about enough. It's because it's not super sexy, but when I left the ER and I started sleeping for the first time in 15 years, like real seven or eight hour sleeping sessions, it changed everything for me, for my health. And I think that that's a big one. Sleep. Yeah. There's a lot of research on diet, on caloric restriction or time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, as you know. Obviously, because <laughs> you're, I mean, you're the expert on that and what, you know, how those things play a role in aging. And, and they seem to, in some respects, slow down, at least parts of aging. Exercise, I think, is one of the keys as well. Like sleep and exercise, obviously diet, but sleep and exercise to me are like the one two punch because if you don't do those things properly, you're going to age faster. And then avoiding the things you could have, like avoiding toxins of various sorts, whether that's lots of alcohol, which we know now that no amount of alcohol is healthy, no matter how much they tell you that that red wine is good for you. It's probably not. And I'm someone who likes a little alcohol here and there, but but avoiding the top, you know, avoiding smoking. And, and then all the environmental toxins that we're learning about that are so bad for us that we don't even know how bad they are yet. But, but we're starting to see that a lot of the obesity epidemic, at least part of it is from environmental toxins, most likely. And, you know, just all the things around us that are we're soaking into our skin and putting in our bodies. I think we're going to see in the next five to 10 years just how detrimental those things are.
0: Well, and it's interesting, you know, the, the endocrine disrupting chemicals, I don't think this gets, it's not a sexy topic. People don't want to think about, you know, your food is wrapped in plastic and there are parabens and phthalates and all these chemicals that are in your personal care products, not to mention what you're exposed to in your water. And, you know, something that I had never considered was The fact that, you know, women that are taking oral contraceptives or even taking HRT and we're urinating into our toilets and not realizing those hormones are not filtered out of our water supply. So we are bathed in synthetic hormones. We're bathed in all these chemicals. And I agree with you that we haven't seen the full yet net impact, you know, whether it's our children's generation or subsequent generations, the net impact of all of those exposures over time.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I feel like, you know, and I was never one, I'm not one that's scared of the world around me. Like I'm not one that washes my hands 14 times a day. And, you know, <laughs> like I love to just get in the dirt and be like, I'm not a super clean freak. And that goes with, like, I, I've never been super all that scared of things around me, but just in the last few years, just reading about, you know, the decreasing sperm counts and the infertility going up and, you know, all of these hormonal changes that we're starting to see that have serious, you know, ramifications. Like I have a 12 year old son and I would like him to be able to have children. And, you know, what am I giving him or doing to him that is making that potentially not possible? I have 14 year old daughters, you know, so I'm not as worried about myself because I have kids and, you know, I'm, whatever's going to happen is probably going to happen, but I am very worried about my kids and their kids.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because my, I have two teenagers myself. I have a 15 year old and a 17 year old. And of course I know nothing. They're at the stage where mom knows nothing. (laughs) And all my concerns about, you know, nutrition, which they used to readily accept now it's, you know, they're constantly bucking the system. And I just remind them, I'm like, listen, my greatest contribution to the world is raising two strong, independent, intelligent young people. And I just want you to be as healthy as possible. Now they could go off to college and they could completely do the opposite of the way they grew up but i do endeavor and try to impress upon them that you know these lifestyle pieces really do matter even though right now they think i'm the least intelligent mom in the world and i just remind them i was like this is part of the process this is how you developmentally separate yourself from your parents and then you're ready to go off to college but let's talk about destigmatizing sex i think you know one of the really important reasons that i wanted to bring you on the podcast and you started this off saying that one of your patients said that their physician told them, okay, you don't have any interest in sex. Okay. Then it's time to like, just forget about that aspect of your personality. But I know that you talk about sexual health because it is such an important part of just our normal day-to-day communication and interaction. And so one of the statistics that I read that was surprising was that 20% of all marriages are sexless. And that really was very sobering, because I would imagine that there are many people out there that assume that because they have no desire to have sex, that that's normal. And they're uncomfortable having those conversations with their providers. So there's this stigmatization about talking about our own sexual needs with our providers. And I'm hopeful that will change. I know that you feel similarly.
1: Yeah. I feel, you know, I feel very strongly that sexual health is just one more aspect of health. It's like, you know, it's just like cardiovascular health or brain health or joint health or any other kind of health. And that, and if we can talk about it and, you know, talk about the health benefits, talk about the things that in our world that impact it in a sort of just a medical way, but that makes it accessible to people that people will just think of it as one more part of their bodies. And I, you know, I tell my patients that I tell my audiences that I tell my kids that, because I think it's really important. You know, sexual health is interesting in that unlike some of the other types of health, it actually gets, receives input from all different sort of types of health. So physical health for sure, but also our mental and emotional health, you know, are going to feed into our sexual health. And then you're going to have your social health, your relationship health is going to feed into that as well as your environmental health, you know, these the toxins and things like that. So you have all of these things all feeding into, and your spiritual health. I didn't mention that, but that's something else that plays hugely into sexual health. So you have all of these different aspects of health that are kind of coming together in sexual health. And so when you have a problem, that's a sexual health problem, whether that's lack of libido, whether that's lack of arousal, whether that's, you know, pain, whatever it is, you know, Oftentimes it's not necessarily like, you know, a problem with your broken vagina, like it's a problem potentially, usually with one of those other things. And so I like using sexual health as a way to kind of like a portal almost to get in there and look and see what else is going on. That could be the real problem. Is it hormones? Is it, you know, how you were raised and shame and guilt is it an actual structural problem or blood flow problem. So, yeah, I think that's so important. And, you know, for men and women, I think, especially women have a very difficult time saying this is not working well for me and I deserve better. And I feel like, you know, men don't have as hard a time saying I deserve better, but women do. And I think part of that is because women have didn't realize, or maybe don't realize that there are so many options out there for them. You know, they feel like they have a low libido or they're not having orgasms or whatever. And they're like, okay, that's just how it is now. But the truth is there's actually so much that can be done, but you just have to ask, you know, have to ask for help first.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's so important for people to understand that it's not just one issue with impacting your libido. It can be multiple things. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think there is a degree of shame that women feel like, you know, whether it's because they are giving to everyone else all day long and they get in bed at night and they're just exhausted. And they're like, I don't want to have to do the one more thing. Right. And that's exacerbated by other types of pressures and low testosterone and, and other things. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is you talk quite a bit about nitric oxide. And this brings me back to being taking pre-med classes many years ago. And I had this professor who was crazy about nitric oxide and I really do have to give it to her. She was like way ahead of her time but let's talk about the role of nitric oxide in sexual health because then we can then pivot and talk about ways to address this
1: yeah so nitric oxide is the main chemical that tells your blood vessels to open up, to vasodilate, so to go from being really small to being larger. And so you can imagine this is important for getting blood flow all over your bodies. People use nitric oxide you know, in their pre-workouts to get blood flow to their muscles, but it's also necessary to give blood flow to your genitals. And in fact, when you have an erection, and that's men and women, we both have erections, that's a nitric oxide driven you know, thing that it basically increases blood flow down there. So medications like Viagra, the way that they actually work is that they prevent your body from breaking down its own nitric oxide as quickly. Um, So it's just keeping it around longer. But what happens as we get older, you know, after about age 25, 30, we stop making as much nitric oxide every year. We make less and less. So by the time you're 40, you're making about half as much as your 20 year old friends. And so you have less of the ability to kind of get blood to those different areas. So, you know, working on ways to maintain your nitric oxide is really important. And the older you get, the more important that becomes.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting. Cause like I mentioned, I had this professor in college who was crazy about nitric oxide and I retrospectively, you know, working in cardiology, obviously very important, but When I was reading and preparing for this, I kept thinking, I'm going to keep thinking of that same professor, how brilliant I thought she was. And of course, at the time we didn't, because she was just really hard and challenging. Like her feeling was, if you can't get an A in my class, you don't deserve to be in any type of medical field in any capacity. So what are some of the things that can help with boosting nitric oxide? We'll start the conversation there and then we'll kind of meld into, you know, how you, what is your methodology for working with women, especially most of my listeners are perimenopausal menopausal women. So, you know, kind of your philosophy, governing philosophy about how you approach sexual health at
1: this stage. Yeah. Okay. So nitric oxide, some basic things, are things are just lifestyle. So exercise is going to increase your levels, getting a little bit of sun, sunlight actually increases levels, or red light therapy. If you don't have access to a sun, to a sun, <laughs> to the sun. <laughs> Um, or any sun. Those things are really key. You could also eat a diet high in nitrates, which we're thinking more like vegetables and fruits. So green leafy vegetables, beets, you know, citrus, things like that are high in nitrates. That's a good way to boost levels, but you do want to avoid, if you're going to do that, you want to avoid using antiseptic mouthwash because that's going to kill the bacteria in your mouth that you actually need to change those nitrates into nitric oxide in your body. So avoid the Listerine, or at least don't use it very much. You also really want to avoid using acid blocking medications because that's going to also prevent you from being able to make nitric oxide from food, especially the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors like protonics. Those are awful for nitric oxide, which is probably why they're associated with such an increased risk of heart attacks and and such. So those are some of the things that uh, breathing through your nose instead of your mouth is a very easy way to do it. And that's why you know if you're out exercising, it's really important. If you can breathe through your nose or sleep, being with your taping your mouth shut is something you can do. That's really helpful as well. You know, some, just some little things like that. And then there's some like newfangled kind of biohacker stuff, like hyperbaric oxygen can do it. PEMF uh, can do it. There's a lot of things out there, but the main things are just exercise, get some sun, eat lots of green leafy vegetables, you know, ditch the mouthwash.
0: You know, it's interesting. My husband was a big Listerine addict. There's no other way to put it. And I finally got him weaned off of that after explaining to him and to your point, it impacts nitric oxide production, but It also kills off the beneficial bacteria in your oral microbiome. And the oral microbiome is tied in with our general gut microbiome, as well as our vaginal microbiome for those people that are women. And I think, you know, we do such a good job of trying to sterilize everything, not realizing that we don't want to kill off all the beneficial bacteria. There's a lot to that. So in in terms of those are some nutritional things, but when women come to you and they're saying my libido's in the toilet, I'm in perimenopause, menopause, they come to you initially, possibly for hormonal replacement therapy, what's your traditional methodology? Are you doing Dutch hormone testing? Obviously you're doing serum blood testing. What are some of the things you're looking for to help uncover why, although I'm sure you probably highly suspect specific things. What are some of the contributors to this low libido syndrome?
1: So we will start usually with blood testing of hormones as well. And, you know, certainly can do Dutch testing or other testing if needed, but I like to get, you know, blood testing is so we know what those levels are. So I really like to start with blood testing, but blood test, um, you know, good history, a good exam is kind of the starting place. And then from there, I kind of approach it, you know, I think of it sort of as sort of these four pillars, if you will, of optimizing sexual health. So the first one is the mind, mind, the mind. So that's looking at, you know, what's like, mostly it's a stress. Oftentimes it's stress. Oftentimes it's, This person is is having too much stress. They're not dealing with it properly or at all, and that's of course going to affect everything from your hormones to your mindset. Um, You want to be really, for women especially, but for men too, you want to be in this sort of parasympathetic, rest and relaxed state. You know, to be able to really enjoy your sexual experience. Um, And many of us just aren't most of the time. And so, getting into that state. So whether that's something like sort of ancient practices like you know meditation and breath work and journaling, there's also like a lot of new stuff out there, like sort of new tech, you know, that uses vibration or light or sound or apps that are focused on women um, and getting you in that mindset, that's sort of the first thing is mind the mind. And then, you know, part of that, of course, includes if you have uh, sexual trauma history or shame or guilt. Like I'm not a sex therapist. I don't, I'm not the person for that, but referring out to the people that can help with that. So that's kind of the first piece. And then the second piece from, I think about is blood flow. And this is you know important for men and women, like we talked about with so nitric oxide, and then just looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease, because anything that's going to, you know, decrease blood flow to your heart could also decrease blood flow to your clitoris and to your penis. And so making sure that we're optimizing just lifestyle in general, all the things that we know are going to affect cardiovascular disease and just reducing inflammation. And then the third thing that I look at is the hormones. And that's really important, you know, looking specifically in women at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol is important. DHEA, you know, there's a whole bunch of different hormones that come into play, but is a person perimenopausal. Are they menopausal? Are they on birth control? Maybe that's contributing to it. Um, so there's a lot of hormonal pieces that need to be looked at and, and everyone's very different. And then last, I look at the actual structural organs, like, are, you know, is there a problem with the actual vagina or the actual clitoris? And usually it's, there's not usually, um, but you know, you could have some kind of scarring or you could have, um, lichen sclerosis or, you know, some sort of problem that's causing pain, um, or pelvic floor problems. The pelvic floor muscles can become really tight and that can make things painful or they can become too loose and that can make things make it hard to reach orgasm and such. So looking at the structural health of those is important as well.
0: I think that's really helpful, you know, having this kind of very structured methodology that you use with your patients to kind of get a sense of how best to support them. Now, I know that, you know, when I was preparing for this, I was trying to keep certain regenerative therapies straight, because this is a little bit new for me. Um, But talking about like PRP and stem cells and exosomes, what are the differentiators, in general terms, how do you go about utilizing those different therapies with women at this stage of life?
1: Yeah. So when it comes down to that sort of fourth piece, if we're looking to really maybe potentially increase uh, blood flow or increase sensation, we might do uh, some regenerative injections. So PRP is platelet-rich plasma, and that's just getting the blood centrifuging it and then getting the platelets concentrated. And of course, PRP has been used for 30, 40 years at this point. Um, and basically it just, it kind of acts as a, it signals the cells that are already in your body to become more active. And really with all of these therapies, whether we're using stem cells or PRP or growth factors or exosomes, what we're trying to do is to send a signal to the stem cells and the other cells that are already there in the tissue that already live there in the vagina or the clitoris, um, tell those cells, hey, let's become more active. Like let's stop just sitting around because what happens is as we get older, our stem cells become less active. So we're just trying to sort of stimulate the cells that are already there to become more active, to increase blood flow or blood vessel formation, to improve nerve healing, you know, like all the things that they can do. So we can use stem cells from the patient is one option and another option. So like bone marrow stem cells or fat derived stem cells. And then exosomes are growth factors that are from other, like, you know, we use them. They're like growth factors from the stem cells, but not the cells themselves. And we are not able to use exosomes anymore because of the FDA, but that was something that we were doing for a little while.
0: And do you, most people have to go through multiple visits to be able to utilize these therapies? This is all new to me. This is like brand new territory, but I was like, I'm going to ask all the questions. I know people would be asking me (laughs) how many times for the average person, obviously, how many times do they have to come in for these types of injections? Are they painful? I'm assuming you probably are giving topical numbing cream of some kind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you're just doing like PRP, for instance, has been around for a long time and and can be pretty easily injected. Usually the injections we're doing on women are into the clitoris, but yes, we'd use topical numbing first, because that would be very painful. And then we'll do kind of anterior vaginal wall, like up kind of where the G spot or G zone is, if you will. So those are kind of the general areas, but really you know, PRP can be injected other places as well. If need be, it could be the labia, if you had some scarring there or some, some pain or something. And, so, and oftentimes that will be repeated. If it's PRP, maybe it gets repeated again in a few months, maybe not depending on the response. I do a lot of stem cell procedures in my office. And so we're using PRP and stem cells. And most of my patients are traveling in from out of state or out of the country. So they don't tend to come back at least for, <laughs> for a year or two. Sometimes they'll come back later, but just not right away because because the stem cells are going to be you know more of a procedure. And so they usually just come in once and then we'll do this. And then I'll have them go back home. And if they need to do PRP, PRP injections or, you know, some other therapy then I'll have them usually do that kind of locally once they get back home.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans-resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification dranna.com dot com slash cynthia that's ten percent off your first per that's ten percent off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com dot com slash cynthia it's delicious and nutritious and then like a stepwise approach you have those options and then things like shockwave therapy and lasers. And so, you know, I would imagine some people are probably using a combination of therapies. How does that typically work?
1: Yeah, lasers. I don't use as many lasers as I used to. I still will sometimes use like radio frequency, intravaginal radio frequency versus, you know, lasers can work. They can be helpful for lubrication, uh, but they can also cause burns and problems like that. And so you kind of got to be, be kind of careful with that. The radio frequency treatments are just kind of heating up the vaginal tissues and that can definitely increase you know, the sensation. It can improve lubrication as well. Although the best thing for lubrication, if you're, especially if you're peri or postmenopausal, is just getting on some vaginal estrogen. That's it's game changing, especially in menopause for lubrication. And then shockwave therapy is interesting. That's been really well studied in men. And I say, really, it's been used for about 10 years in humans for erectile dysfunction, but it's just now started getting used in women. And I haven't seen the studies yet, but there are definitely some, a lot of case reports and anecdotal kind of situations where it seems to increase blood flow to the clitoris and vagina, and, and maybe even tighten up some of the labia some of the tissue there in a very, very safe way. So yeah, those are definitely options. And I also, like some of the home options. Like I like the intravaginal red light therapy device that VFit makes. I don't have any affiliation with them, but it's just like red light therapy, but it just goes inside. And so it feels like kind of like a hot stone massage for your vagina, but you're getting that increased, you know, mitochondrial ATP production and increased blood flow and all of that, um, which I think is kind of nice for the insides as well as the outsides.
0: Well, and I think for a lot of people, maybe they are they can like mentally work themselves up to having a device at home and then going in for additional therapies. I would imagine when you're prescribing estradiol and testosterone and progesterone, are you using compounded or using synthetic versus bioidentical? What is your kind of Mindset around that. I got a lot of questions around this in particular.
1: Yeah, it's very confusing. And I will tell you that the the way these things are described is very confusing. So traditionally, when when people said bioidentical, they were talking about sort of this comp these compounded, you know, made in compounded pharmacies, not pharmaceutical. But there are pharmaceutical products that are the exact same molecules, the exact same ingredients as these compounded versions that are we tend to call those body identical. So for instance, you can get progesterone as a pill by a pharmaceutical company and it's called Prometrium, that's one of the brands. And that is body identical. so it's the same as the the progesterone in my body, or you can get progesterone compounded by a compounded pharmacy and that's bioidentical. Both of those things work. And I am agnostic to which one works the best. I do like for progesterone, I like it to be, I like, I prefer oral progesterone to creams for sure. But like same thing with estradiol, you can get it bioidentical, body identical. What you don't want is you don't want the, they say synthetic, but really all of these things are synthetic in some way, but essentially the things that are not identical-ish to your body. So for instance, the big one is the progestins, that like the um, like the progestin products that were used in the WHI. What you don't want is all of those things. <laughs> you don't want the ones that are made from horses' urine, or they're made. You know, they're very very synthetic and not like the hormones that your body already makes.
0: I think that's important for people to hear because there are lots of options. Obviously, depending on who you are as an individual, it can influence what your body needs. What are your thoughts on pellets? I had to ask. Mm,
1: Yeah. You know, I have mixed thoughts on pellets. I've done pellets for, I did pellets for many years. I haven't been doing them as much in the last few years. I think that they work really well for some populations. Um, for instance, I had a lot of military men and women who loved pellets because they could come in, you know, you put the pellet, essentially it's like, it's a, it's usually testosterone, sometimes estrogen or progesterone, but usually testosterone is the main component of the ones that I've used. Um, but you put it underneath their skin, like usually kind of on their upper buttock area. And, you know, it stays there for three to four five months or so, and it just slowly releases the hormones. And so I think it's fantastic in people who are um, going out of the country, or they just really can't deal with all these other supplies. Um, The downside to pellets are that once they're in, you can't, you can't get them out, or at least not very easily. So if you have a problem, if you develop acne, if you develop, you know, a change in your voice for women or, or clitoromegaly, which is a swollen clitoris for women, which doesn't happen very often, but if you did have those things, getting that pellet out is very, very difficult. So it's one of those things, you just wanna be very careful. And if you use pellets, make sure you have a doctor who knows about dosing really well and also has a really good clean sterile technique because you can get infections from those things as well.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because I've had a lot of women that end up in programs working with me and and I work concurrently with other providers and what's been my experience, and it's probably skewed because they're coming, they're seeking other ways to address their hormone imbalances is it's for some people and someone that it isn't a good fit for, sometimes they feel really great for a week or two. And then when their testosterone levels will normalize or get back to where they were before, they'll have this crash. And so obviously working with a talented practitioner and someone that's going to select the best option for you, I think is really important. Now, there are a lot of new novel supplements, medications that have come out and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, this is a big one. This is one that a lot of people are talking about, GLP-1 agonists. So looking at semiglutide, which I know a lot of people in Hollywood are using. And I've had a couple of patients who were prescribed it before they started working with me. And a lot of them suddenly became horrifically constipated, nauseous, Mm. but they were thrilled because they didn't want to (laughs) eat. They were like, this is is a good trade-off. I'm losing weight, but let's talk about how these drugs work whether or not microdosing is even a good option for people that are sensitive to the side effects and so what has been your clinical experience working with them?
1: Yeah, I've been using simiglutide with patients for about a year. And you know I think it is an amazing drug but there are some side effects and some downsides to it for sure. And then then there's the newer uh, trisepatide that just came out as well. That's similar and actually probably even better for weight loss. But basically semaglutide is a GLP-1 agonist. It's a class of these diabetic drugs that have been out for a long time, actually. But this particular one was found to be really effective in helping people to not be hungry. And it seems to work uh, by a couple of mechanisms. One is it seems to affect your brain and tell your hypothalamus, hey, I'm not hungry. Your brain's like, hey, I'm not hungry. And then it also seems to affect the stomach itself. And so it slows gastric emptying, which is probably why some of the side effects that happen, right? So the most common side effect is nausea. That one can be severe. Like you can just get these amazing, severe waves of nausea and certainly, and throwing up too, like not just nausea, but yes, constipation can happen or gassiness or diarrhea. But nausea is the one that tends to just kind of knock people out, especially when they're first starting. The dosing is such that you do want to start at a very, very small dose, You know, a 10th or even less than the... overall dose that you could go up to. And so the dosing is such that you start Them you very, very slowly increase it if needed. I've had a lot of patients actually who have used just like they'll use it. So it's a once a week dose normally, but I've had a number of patients who'll just use it maybe once every two weeks or once every three weeks. If they're just trying to lose a little bit of weight or even just kind of maintain weight, and I actually have seen that work pretty well, um, but certainly if you're trying to lose weight, then once a week is the dosing. It's a, it's an injectable, just a subcutaneous injection. The main downside that I've seen are besides the side effects is that you can lose quite a bit of, you can lose muscle and fat if you're losing too quickly. And if you're not maintaining protein, you know, your protein requirements. And I think Peter Tia just spoke to this as well. I was just listening to something he said, but, and it's true because you have all of a sudden your appetite just gone. And like food is like, eh, like I could eat that or I could like go and do something else. Like you just don't care that much. And I think that what happens is people just forget to eat protein, which they still need to eat to maintain muscle. And so, you know, you lose muscle and fat. And so that has to be, you have to really watch that if you're taking that drug and just be very careful.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because I think I think it was one of those garbage New York Times articles. And I'm not denigrating New York Times. I'm just saying, like, you know, the things that pop up in your Facebook feed that you it's like clickbait, you then go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And then you've, you know, read your four free articles for the month and they want you <laughs> to pay for access. And so it was interesting because they were saying a lot of people in Hollywood are using it. And now it's gotten to a point where it's gotten very expensive for people to gain access to. So you've got people maybe who are diabetic. Or metabolically inflexible who really could benefit from the drug, but it's now gotten so expensive that they can't afford to, you know, even use it with insurance if insurance is even covering it. Now, another thought out that I was thinking about longevity or medications that might be of interest, you know rapamycin, what are your thoughts around rapamycin? Is this something you're using with your patients? Do you feel are you a little controversial about this? You know, what are your thoughts on rapamycin?
1: I'm pretty excited about rapamycin. I think that there's definite downsides and side effects and it's not for everyone and don't go out and do it on your own and go buy it from some random garage somewhere. (laughs) Um, But I do think that there's a lot of interesting data. You know, it's mostly animal data still, but but basically showing that this drug could potentially you know improve longevity and improve health span. It is a drug that is was originally approved for treating things like graft versus host disease, so it's it's actually classified as being an immunosuppressant which is interesting but that in the doses that are used you know for longevity you take you're taking it once a week and you're taking very you know much smaller doses or once every two weeks there's various dosing regimens certainly it's all considered to be off label and something that if done needs to be done with a doctor who's checking your blood counts for instance because you can have you know, it can reduce your infection fighting cells like your white blood cells and your other and blood counts um it can increase your blood sugar at least transiently and it can even affect some of your hormones like your testosterone can go down for, in, for a period of time so i personally have taken repamycin for about four years. And I mean, I've been pretty honest about all the things, all the crazy things I do, but I also am very, very good about watching all of my own numbers and getting labs. And, you know, I keep track of things. And I know all about it and I accept the risk, you know, it's, so I don't think it's for everyone. So right now my patients, like I'm only seeing new, I only have stem cell patients that I see currently. So I don't tend to prescribe it, but I am working with some advising some other companies and clinics and things. And, you know, we're talking about it and whether to roll it out as a potential for a subset of patients who are very educated, very proactive and are willing to do all of the lab testing and such to stay on that kind of drug.
0: It's really exciting. And then I also think about things like NAC and mitochondrial support. And are there kind of general suggestions or recommendations? I know you said you're only working with your PRP patients, but if we're doing like a high level, these are the things I think about for women in terms of supplementation that have benefits and can be helpful at this stage of life.
1: Yeah. So I actually just launched a longevity product that is for men and women, but it's really, really good for women. That's called Hopbox, H-O-P-B-O-X, and you go to hopbox.life. But basically it's a whole, it's like a month of uh, supplements and it includes things that, like you mentioned, it it doesn't include NAC because that wasn't available for us for a little while, but it will be in some of the next ones, I think. But some of my favorites, I still like NMN, which is going to increase NAD levels, which is good for mitochondria. Spermidine is in there as well, which I think is fantastic. Longevity is as well as skin, like skin and hair specifically. Calcium alpha-ketoglutarate has some interesting evidence for longevity. I um, mean, then some of the other sort of basics like, querc- like quercetin and fisetin and curcumin and vitamin D and vitamin K, you know, some of the things that are like the, the, that, as well as um, dihydroberberine or berberine is really, really good for blood sugar. And if you're someone who's kind of borderline, you know, could be on some medication or could not, then something like that uh, is fantastic for getting those levels down.
0: And in terms of berberine, is that something that you recommend your patients cycle on and off of? Because I'm starting to see, you know, some of my patients, I'll have them take berberine with like a higher carbohydrate meal or at certain times during their menstrual cycle. Do you have your patients cycle on and off? Or is this something that you recommend taking continuously?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it depends as long as you don't have side effects from it. Some berberines can cause some stomach upset and can cause um, some problems. The one that we put in our product, this dihydroberberine is a little bit different in that it gets absorbed much more quickly and it has a higher bioavailability. And so we don't tend to see the GI side effects with that. But yeah, as long as, you know, as long as it's not causing side effects and you're, you know, occasionally checking your numbers and making sure that they're good, it doesn't tend to drop your sugar too low. It's not like a diabetes medication where it tends to drop it too low. But, you know, obviously if you're fasting, don't take it, But if you're eating, it's probably fine to take it most days.,
0: oh, thank you for that clarification. And I before we kind of sign off on our discussion, I would love to touch on skin and hair. I know this is an area that is a particular interest to you. I think there are a lot of women in middle age who start seeing sometimes the first effects of aging that they're seeing are in their skin. Maybe their hair isn't as lustrous. Maybe it's not as full, but they start seeing, you know, that the turkey neck, they start seeing, you know, more fine lines and wrinkles. And so, obviously, I know hormone replacement therapy can play a huge role in this, but what are some of the other modalities that you like to use when you're working with women to help improve these areas?
1: Yes, I definitely, definitely hormone replacement therapy. Estrogen is your skin's best friend. um, And you can do that. You know, that's great as a systemic estrogen or you could even do topical estrogen um, as well, like in very small doses. I do like some of the regenerative therapies like the PRP, certainly stem cells, if you have access to it, like, you know, just doing like microneedling, for instance, and applying something like PRP. Or if you don't have that, you could also do microneedling and apply vitamin C serum or hyaluronic acid. It's essentially anything that you want to kind of get into the deeper layers of your skin. Microneedling is great for that. You know, there's lots of great like lasers and radiofrequency devices and radiofrequency microneedling, which is great if you want to go to see, you know, a dermatologist or plastic surgeon. I'm a huge fan of retinoids. So getting a good quality retinoid, it requires usually go through going through a doctor or having sort of a higher, you know, just a nicer skincare product or retinols, which you can get over the counter. But basically those, they're, you know, They have a lot of good evidence for uh, just improving skin health over time. Big, big fan of sunblock on your face, at least face and neck and back of your hands, you know, the places that are out there all the time. And I think that in the sort of wellness communities, biohack communities, they, you know, people really frown on using any sort of sun protection, which I think is, you know, that's fine if you don't care about wrinkles and if you don't care about the way that your skin looks, because the sun is the number one cause of skin aging no, there's no doubt about that. And so a good mineral sunblock, like a zinc oxide or titanium dioxide on your face every single day in your neck is going to go a long way to, towards helping to prevent future damage as well.
0: And I think for a lot of people, I mean, I certainly grew up at the beach and, you know, I stopped probably by the time I was like probably a sophomore in college. Cause I stayed at college instead of going back home, but I have friends that have laid in the sun. I mean, all summer long, every year, And the sun damage is real. You know, UVAs age our skin, UVBs burn our skin and you get, you know, DNA damage to your skin and and you can really see an accelerated change in your skin tone and so in your skin texture and that couple in the loss of elastin and collagen that's accelerated and exacerbated by the loss of estrogen. And it kind of creates the perfect environment for people, you know, seeking out, you know what product can they use? What are the things they can be proactive about? And in terms of hair, is it the same types of things? Like I know there's minoxidil and I know people use that and to, with some improvement in their, in their hair, but I, I'm starting to see more people using collagen, you know, supplemental collagen in their coffee or in a smoothie, yeah. uh, feeling like that's beneficial beyond that. What are some of the things that you like to use or you generally recommend?
1: Yeah, I I like collagen. I also like hyaluronic acid orally as well. That's something that's also great for skin and hair and joints and eyeballs and all the things that are (laughs) that need a little bit of extra sort of gooey, slimy stuff. I like that a lot. I like for hair, you know, it's really difficult. There's not, it depends on what's going on. Certainly avoiding the sun, you know, wearing a hat actually helping protect your hair from UV damage, because your hair follicles can be damaged by the sun as well is important. And then for men, DHT blocking shampoos can be really helpful. Minoxidil works for both men and women. You have to apply it every day and you can't just stop doing it, but it does work for at least half of people who use it. It will help to increase hair growth. For... And then, you know, I think the regenerative treatments can be helpful as well. The PRP injections or peptide injections, peptides like GHK copper could be good for hair, PTD, DBM for men, zinc thymulin for women. There's a couple of different peptides that either you could use topically or potentially do like sub-Q injections, you know, every day or every week or every month or whatever.
0: It's all fascinating. Well, Amy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And obviously I look forward to interviewing you again, because there were so many (laughs) rabbit holes we could have gone down. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to purchase your hot box, which I'm really interested in myself.
1: Yes. Thank you. Um, this has been so fun. I'm so glad as well. So I'm very active on Instagram and that's Dr. Amy B. Killen. And then I have a website, which is Dr. Amy We're redoing that. It should be up soon. And then the www.hopbox.com. BOX.life life is my new supplement launch that's just happening this week, which I'm excited about. And then I also do have a stem cell clinic, which is at docereclinics.com, D-O-C-E-R-E. So I'll give you all those links to those things.
0: Awesome. It's been such a pleasure connecting with you. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.